Um, let's turn for our sermon to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with earthen, like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O kings of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He will not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The Word of the Lord. Well, now, last week we talked about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is the doorkeeper. He's the doorkeeper to the book of Psalms. The doorkeeper, the guy who guards the door as you enter the book of worship. Psalms is the longest book, if you will, in the entire entirety of the Bible. And so as we enter into this book of worship, there's somebody standing at the door and they're asking us a, a personal question. Are you in the assembly of the righteous? Or are you in the assembly of the wicked? Those who are in the assembly of the righteous are those who are in harmony with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They are walking in the counsel of Jesus' words. They're standing in the path or in the way of Jesus. And they're sitting down and they are thinking holy thoughts and talking about holy things. And those who are though, who are uh, in the counsel of the wicked, or the assembly of the wicked, they are walking contrary to Jesus. They're standing and opposing Him, not standing in agreement with Him, but standing in disagreement with Him. And they are sitting and they are mocking the things of God. Those who are in the assembly of the righteous, they are like trees. Remember we said they're like trees, transplanted trees. Trees that are, that are planted by a vital source of water that flows into their roots. Trees that bear fruit and trees that are prosperous. Those who are not these trees, those who are in the assembly of the wicked, they are not like these trees. They are chaff. If you look at chaff, chaff is dry. The Bible says very little about chaff. It says a great deal about the trees. It says very little about the chaff. They don't have the water. They're blown away. They burn at the day of judgment. But those who are trees, those who are in the assembly of the righteous in right relation to God, they are those who do not perish but have eternal life. And so as we open the book of Psalms, we open Psalm 1, we're asked this question, are you rightly related to God? Are you in the assembly 
of the righteous. Now, as we turn the corner and we enter into the book, we look at Psalm 2 and it moves from a personal question to the big picture. Do you know the history, the destiny of history? Do you know where history is going? Verse 8 tells us where history is going. Here we have God the Father talking to God the Son in the eternal council, talking about what is going to happen at the very end. Before it all begins in the eternal councils of God, we have the Father saying this to the Son. He says, Son, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession." So here, before it all begins, before there's ever a Matthew 28, before there's ever an Acts chapter 1 verse 8, before there's ever a Psalm verse chapter 2, there's the Father talking to the Son and planning out this redemption that's going to be accomplished at the very end. This is the destiny of history. God Himself, the Lord, will anoint His Son to be King. This is what is going to happen. He says in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is at the end, at the great consummation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, we're told Christ will destroy every dominion, every authority, every power, human or superhuman, that seeks to raise its head up against Jesus Christ. Anyone who will not kiss the Son, as another translation there in verse 12, do homage to the Son, Kiss the Son. If you don't kiss the Son, then we're on the wrong side of history, maybe we should say, as so many say today. I want to be on the right side of this history. So you and I, we do not have to wonder about the destiny of the world. We do not have to worry about whether the world will end because of a meteorite running into us and destroying us. We do not have to worry about men who push buttons and send nuclear bombs up into the air. We do not have to worry about global warming destroying us. God Himself will crown Jesus Christ to be the ruler of all that is. That's the big picture. But what is the condition of the world over which the Lord will crown His Son? What is the condition of this world? Is the condition best described by illiteracy? There's lots of illiteracy. Is the condition right now in the world best described by... um, Poverty, lots of lots of poverty, man. I tell you what, folks. If you, I know, if you go into different parts of Houston, you see some poverty. If you go to California, you see some poverty that'll almost bring you to tears. Is that the best description of the world today? Is the best description? I heard somebody say yesterday that the the, mo- the most important thing at the breakfast table right now is to discuss climate change with your children. Is that the most important thing? Is that what is most important and most accurate description of the world today over which God will send, will crown His Son, Jesus Christ? Well, we're told what it is, the most accurate description is. In verses 1 through 3, the world, this is point number 1, the world rejects the Lord. Verses 1 through 3, the whole world rejects the reign of the Lord's anointed. The nations here we see are in an uproar. And the peoples are devising a vain thing. So we have nations, we have rulers, we have peoples. They're all coming together against the Lord. This is, this is really meant for us to see a contrast. In Psalm 1, it says that the godly man, the blessed man, is meditating on the law of the Lord. The same word is translated plotting in chapter, in chapter 2. 
Exactly the same word. Plotting against the Lord and His anointed. These, the blessed man is meditating on the law of the Lord and the ungodly and the kings and the rulers of this world are plotting or meditating against the Lord. This is the historical reality. Now, history tells us that this psalm was written by David and he and his descendants are constantly under threat from the surrounding nations. But this prophetically speaks of somebody greater than David, doesn't it? This is pointing us to Jesus Christ who comes as our Savior and our Lord. The most accurate description of the world today is a world that is opposing the Lord, God the Father and His anointed Son. And David writes, verse 1, He's astonished. Why are these nations in an uproar? Why are the peoples devising this vain thing? It's all in vain for them to conspire against the Lord and His anointed. And it's all fueled by hatred. This is as sad as it gets. This is the truth. Men are hating God around us. Men are opposed to God. It's the nature of man to take the laws of God and to seek to throw them off as if they are shackles, as if they're fetters. They want to get rid of the law of God. This is the most accurate description. Now, why did the Lord give us these fetters? Why did the Lord give us these shackles? Why did the Lord give us the law? Well, because He loves us. And He knows that we all live free inside of certain boundaries. That's the way life works. Now, there's a movie out there that came out years ago. And there's a little girl named Elsa who sings in this movie called Frozen. This is what she says that freedom is. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. Is that freedom? That's chaos. Oh my, that's chaos. That's anarchy. But let me tell you what real freedom is. Real freedom in marriage. And we're going to end with this in a few minutes. Real freedom is marriage. If you want the delight of marriage, you have to also avoid the dangers. You have to submit to the rules of marriage or you don't get the delight of marriage. You have to live within the rules or you don't get the fun. You don't get the face. You don't get the red hair. You don't get these things unless you, unless you work according to the rules of marriage. I can't go running around and saying, no rules, no wrongs, no, you know, no rules for me. I'm going to stay out, Lori, as long as I want to. I'm going to see as many other women as I want to. Just, just try that out. Mark, just go try that out. I, I, I would fear for my life. All the enjoyment of marriage is operating in restraints and constraints. But the world just keeps singing this song. No rules for me. No right or wrong. And it's just total chaos that happens. And it's going on all around us. You know, here's the problem with sin. Sin is irrational. Just just never forget that. Sin is irrational. Sin doesn't think. Sin just goes out and does what it feels like doing. Sin just goes out and does what everybody else is doing. It's irrational. And so this is what people do when they're against God. Adam and Eve said, no rules for me. God gives them a garden. God gives them provision. He gives them all these trees. There's so much. There's promises of eternal life and all the rest. And they say, no rules for me. I won't do what you say. 
And you can go to Genesis 11 and it's magnified. It's, it's Adam and Eve's sin on steroids in Genesis 11. God says, I want you to go out, be fruitful and multiply the, the image of God across the face of the earth. I want you to go out and rule and reign over all that is. And these people, what do they do? They go and say, we're going to live over here in the, in the plain of Shinar. We're going to get all centralized over here and we're going to live by ourselves. We're going to, we're going to build our, our city for our, ourselves. And we're going to build a tower up to heaven, not to worship God, but to make a name for ourselves. No rules for me. We're, we're going to do what we want to do. This is what it looks like. This is what we're like. Young people, let me see if I can put it on in perspective for you. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, we would send a rocket into space and blow God off His throne and blow Jesus Christ off His throne. And then we would walk up there and sit down in their seats and we would rule and reign over all that is. That's what we're like. That's what's going on. And we may not like it, but that's what the Bible tells us, right? Even this is passage. Jeremiah seventeen nine says, The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who can know it? It's out of this heart of ours that gushes all kinds of sin. And you can say, I'm not this way. I'm not this way. Well, that just proves the point. You don't know your own heart. We need to obey. We need to believe what God says. You see, sin's irrational. It doesn't believe what God says. But the Word of God says this is the way it is. And we have deceitful hearts. Now, this all plays itself out in history. We read these verses 1 through 3, and you can go over to Acts 4, 25, 26, and 27, and they're repeated. Listen to what it says there. Now, Jesus comes into history, and you remember, I always like to say this, little baby, oh, Herod the Great, he tries to kill that little baby right off the bat. Within the first two years, he's born. But then you move into Acts chapter 4, and this is the crucifixion of Christ And it's the world's hatred of the Lord and His anointed to the extreme. Let me read to you. Listen to this. And keep your maybe keep your eyes focused in there on Psalm 2. Just listen. Here it is. Who by the Holy Spirit, this is the Apostle Peter preaching, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, he said this, Why did the Gentiles or the nations rage? And the peoples devised futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Then comes the explanation in verse 27, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of of Israel. Now listen. Herod, Antipas, and Pontius Pilate, they were bitter enemies. The people of Israel, the Jews, and the Romans, the Gentiles, bitter enemies. But we'll make an exception when it comes to the Lord and His anointed. We'll gather together and conspire against the Lord and His anointed. We'll put Him on a cross and we'll get rid of Him. We will not have this man to rule over us. Crucify. Crucify Him. Now, let's, let me give you just a brief application before we go to the next point. If you have, and I want to use the term, kissed the sun this morning. Have you taken Jesus' yoke on you? If you've kissed the sun to some degree, you're going to experience this persecution on yourself. You know, think about Cain. Cain couldn't get a hold of God when he disobeyed God and brought his offering. 
But you know who he could get his hands on? He could get his hands on Abel. God, these, these folks who are opposing Jesus Christ right now, they can't get their hands on him, but they can put their hands on you. You and I are going to experience some of this persecution as we bend the knee to Jesus. Verse 29 says in the passage, And now, Lord, take note of their threats against us and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. You and I need boldness to live in this world. Well, here's the second point. The Lord responds by installing his king. His son is king. Is God threatened? Is God threatened when all these people are amassing? <laughs> Listen, think about it like this. The other night we had a ton of ants on the, on the porch. All these red ants. There they are in front of me. You know, I can stand there with a bug spray and blow them all to bits. I'm bigger than they are. Is God afraid of all these rulers and all these nations and all these people devising these things that are vain? You know, when people, uh, when, we, when we invest in people, when we have fellowship meals with people and we give ourselves to people and we give ourselves in relationship to others and then they walk away, it really stings, man. <laughs> what happens here? What's God doing as all these people are rebelling against him? Verse 4 says he sits in the heavens and he's calm he's calm he has a can of bug spray does he use his bug spray he can destroy us he could vaporize us in a moment as enemies but he doesn't do that he's calm verse 6 says this but as for me I have installed God says my king upon Zion my holy mountain he doesn't vaporize his enemies what he does is he sends a son and he's going to install that son as king in Zion. Verse 4 says he sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord laughs at all this show of human power. Just think about it. I'm standing there on the porch. Look at all, all these ants. They're a big show of power. I can blow them to bits with that, that can of spray. God could blow these folks to bits with, their, with his can of spray. And what does he do? He sends a son. He laughs at human power. He, he's going to confound man's wisdom and his power. He sends a son, a baby. Think about a baby. A man who grows up and he's going to be installed on a the holy hill. It speaks of 11 acres of land in Jerusalem. Here's a baby who grows up to be a man. He's going to be installed as king on 11 acres in Jerusalem. This is totally con this is total weakness up against all human power. But the Lord's anointed will be installed over all that is, and he will be invincible. He doesn't use a, his can of spray. He sends his son. And the son's the only answer for our world, this world of rebellion. We've been talking about kings and rulers and masses of people, and ultimately the Lord will place his son over all men on the de great day of consummation. But that day hasn't come yet. So we have to ask ourselves the question, do I submit to the Lord's Son? Have you personally kissed Jesus Christ? Before we move on, those of you who have put your lips on Jesus Christ's feet, remember, maybe this is the only thing that will keep you sane for a week, but remember it. The Lord laughs at the nations. The Lord laughs at all those ants. The Lord laughs at all the people who are haters. The Lord laughs at all the maniacs. 
All the people who say, no rules for me. He laughs. Sometimes one commentator says this is the only thing that will keep us sane. Well, third, we see the Lord's Son speaks of His reign over humanity. The world, the world rejects the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Himself, God the Father, installs His Son as King, and now the Son is going to speak of this reign. Now, this is where it gets really sweet. The Son says, This is what I heard my Father say to me before the world began. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. My reign has to do with my Father's decree before the foundation of the world. And so in these words, he says, in this decree, there's five quick things I want to point out to you. In this decree, the Son speaks of His incarnate Sonship. Notice the words, He, God the Father, said to me, You are my Son. That's, that's, that's stated over and over in the New Testament. You are my son. The two big times are when Jesus is baptized and when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the Father out of the cloud says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when it happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says, Well, let's build a booth to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And the Father says, No. He doesn't really say no. He says, uh, Listen only to Him. Honor only Him. The other two are gone. This is my beloved son. Honor him alone. So he speaks of his incarnate sonship. In this decree, the son speaks of his resurrection. He says, today I have begotten you. The apostle Paul is preaching in Acts 13, 33, and he uses this phrase, today I have begotten you, not to speak of his birth, not to speak of him, his birth and what we celebrate at Christmas, but he speaks of him being raised from the dead. Today I have begotten you. The Father is manifesting His Son. The the Father is saying this to us. He's been hidden away in my bosom. He's been hidden away in the human vesture. But now I've raised Him up. Today, today I have begotten you. The Father is declaring His Son to be His Son most gloriously in the resurrection. Then He speaks about His installation. There's incarnation. There's resurrection. There's 40 days of Jesus wandering around and and appearing to His disciples. And then He ascends into the right hand of God and He is installed in the heavenly places where He rules and reigns in His session now. He also speaks of His reign as it is now. In this eternal decree between Father and Son, He says this, Ask of Me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. So, the Father and the Son, before all that begins, they begin to talk. And the Father says, here's my plan. What I want you to do, I want you to put on human flesh. I want you to go to the earth. I want you to accomplish a great salvation for my people. I'm going to give you these people. I want you to go there. I want you to die on the cross for these people. I want you to offer yourself up as a great high priest for these people and die for these people. And he says, if you ask for me to do this, I'll give them to you. And Jesus in John 17, he goes, he's right before the cross. And what's he doing? He's praying for those disciples who are right in front of him. And then he says he's praying for all those disciples and who they preach the gospel to. So he's praying for them and he's praying for you and me. Before the cross, Jesus prayed for me. Have you ever thought about that? Go read John 17, see what you think. He prayed for you. If you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, if you've kissed the Son this morning, He's prayed for you. 
Jesus Christ asked and God gave them to him. He went and accomplished the goal. And so now Jesus, he's, he's being preached by the disciples. And then they die and go off the scene. And then there's Timothy comes along. And then there's a Titus who comes along. And then there's a Mark Wheat who comes along. And many other preachers in between me and the ones you, you, you've heard before me. All these guys, what do they do? They preach the gospel. They preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the Holy Spirit applies the truth to your life. And you're brought into the kingdom of God. And when did all of this start? It didn't start in Matthew 28 where it says, go and make disciples of all men. It didn't start in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus ascends into the heavens and says he's going to, you're going to go and preach the gospel in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and all the uttermost parts of the earth. It didn't start in Psalm 2. It started before the world began in the heart of God. Well, fifth, in the decree, the son speaks of his reign in the end. Ultimately, God is going to crown Jesus Christ to be king over the visible earth in the end, in the future. Jesus is saying, because I have asked of the Father in answer to all my prayer, the Father will give me the earth. The Father will crown me as king over all. And in the end, I will rule with great power and authority. It's going to be by force then. You know, we think about a baby. We think about being 11 acres. We think about... Weakness, we think about a cross. When Jesus comes again, it'll be with great power, great force. The kingdom of God and His anointed Son, it does not come because the world will welcome His reign, but it will come to a rebellious world. This is the decree. Verse 9, He says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And for those who refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those who will not accept Him, we will be broken in pieces like a, like a piece of pottery, not able to be put back together. And so we end in verses 10 through 12 with the narrator of the psalm inviting us to take refuge in the Son. Verse 12 at the very end, how blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Again, here it is. He doesn't take out the can of bug spray. What does he do? (laughs) With all rebellious people, what does he do? He just keeps saying, hey, how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Another invitation to grace. All those who oppose are invited to take refuge in the Son. There's no refuge from him, only refuge in him. And then he tells us what to do in verse 10. He says, kings, show discernment. What are we to do? Show some discernment. Take the warning. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss or do homage to the Son so that He not become angry. What should we do? Well, we may not like, these kings may not like what they're hearing. And we little kings here on the earth, we may not like what we're hearing. But you and I, we are to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ in total submission. Let me end with this. There's two incentives. There's a danger to avoid. There's a delight to be experienced. What's the danger that we avoid? Well, he says that he will become angry. He will be destroyed. That's the danger to be avoided. He says there's something to be delighted in. There's some delight coming in it to be experienced. If you kiss the sun, there's unbelievable joy and freedom. 
So what do we do? Submit to Jesus Christ and avoid the danger and experience the delight. That's about as easy as you can put it. (laughs) Submit to Jesus Christ, kiss His feet, avoid the danger and experience the delight. Let me me go back. Just, you know, just, just think with me for a few minutes. No rules just right. No rules for me. I got to be free. Stop and think about that. Do we believe that really? People say it every day. People say it all the time. I've, I've seen somebody think that they could get by with saying whatever they wanted to on a TV program until they finally took that TV program off the air. No rules for me. I can say anything I want to. Not really. Not really. You and I, we come over here, we drove over here today. We didn't go We didn't go driving our cars and say no rules for me, no green lights for me, no red lights for me. I'm going to drive wherever I, I want to on this side of the road or on that side. Well, I see some people, maybe they didn't drive on the right side of the road. <laughs> right? No rules for me. All the way over here, you know what? You didn't do that. You stopped at red lights. You stopped at red signs. You went in green and you were cautioned, you were cautioned on yellows. And all the way, you followed the rules. You see, you did abide by the rules, didn't you? When you get married, we all know what I said earlier. If you want to avoid the dangers of being killed in the bed or having a divorce, what you do is you submit to the rules of marriage and you enjoy the delights of it. If you want to be a first chair violinist, what do you do? You submit to a rigorous schedule and you do exactly what you're supposed to do because you want to avoid the danger of not being in that first chair and enjoy the delights of sitting in the first chair. So you will limit your freedom to have the enjoyment of first chair. It works this way. This is how it is. If we would stop and think and not let sin just make us irrational and follow the group and never think... We're all submitting somewhere. And Jesus says, look, submit to me, kiss my feet, worship me. You get the enjoyment, you get the delight, you get the this just delight of knowing him. And what it means to walk in freedom according to rules, because we all are doing it somewhere. Submit to Jesus Christ. Submit, kiss the feet and enjoy the delight. Well, we get to delight this morning. And part of the delight of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ is to sit down and eat a dinner with Him or eat a meal with Him. And the Apostle Paul, he writes to us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. Let me read these words of institution to you and we will take the Lord's Supper together. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also del- delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which He was betrayed took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We know where history's going, folks. And we know that God will crowned Jesus Christ as King over the new heavens and the new earth. We know where He is right now, ruling in heaven, and He will rule in the new heavens and the new earth in the future. And until He comes, He gives us a meal. And we are to remember what He did to accomplish our salvation at this meal. It preaches His suffering until He comes. 
It also is a meal where we are nourished spiritually. We get to participate in his body and his blood spiritually. So get ready to eat and drink from his hand with faith in your hearts and receive the grace that he has for you this morning. Are you doing homage to the son? Then I welcome you to the Lord's table this morning. Those who kiss Jesus' feet, they profess their faith in Christ. Those who kiss Jesus' feet are baptized and they have made themselves accountable to a session of elders in a church. Now, if you don't know what we're doing this morning, if you've not been instructed, I'm going to ask that you let the trays pass you by. But I'm still going to ask that you participate in this way. Jesus says, let's just go back to that point. Submit to the Son, avoid the dangers, and experience the delight. Submit to Jesus. You know, every person you read in the Bible where they're down at Jesus' feet, there's a great deal of love there. They're worshiping Him there. And so that's what I would ask you to do first. Before you participate in the Lord's Supper, kiss the Son's feet. Worship the Son first, and then we'll talk about the table in the future. For all of you who have kissed the Son, examine your hearts. I don't know of a better metaphor than to think about what a worthy preparation for taking the Lord's Supper than looking at this kiss the sun. Do people who kiss the sun's feet trust in their own righteousness? Do people who kiss the Lord's feet, do they trust in their own good works or do they trust in Jesus' good works? Are you kissing His feet? Well, then Jesus says, come. Are you hungry? He says, I'll feed you. He says, are you thirsty? I'll give you drink. Let's come and participate in the table of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to stop and to think through the, the fact of what is going to happen at the end. And until that day, you've given us the word of God to be preached and delighted in and died to, and to make it our diet is more necessary than our daily food that we might dwell on the Lord Jesus Christ and that we might submit to Him and love Him all the days of our lives until He comes again in great glory and power. And Lord, we would right now, we would profess our faith in You. We would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. And Father, we would eat and drink with You this morning. We pray that You would set these elements apart from their common to sacred use as we eat and drink for your glory and may it be for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.